if I know my manager cares about me, I can go in and say, this isn't working. I'm concerned about we're not going to meet the revenue numbers, right? Mm-hmm. And, but caring doesn't mean you're letting me off the hook. It means that I can go in without fear of you know retribution. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey folks, it is RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits, and we are bringing to you another episode with an amazing guest. So we have Anne Sugar on the show today. What a cool name, right? Anne Sugar. But uh, I have been looking to get Anne on the show for some time. She is a dynamic contributor to the Harvard Business Review. Um, Lots of different articles around team-based performance, lots of topics she has covered. And Look, I have been planning on reaching out to her for some time, but when I saw her most recent article on the Harvard Business Review, I really had to talk to her. And it was about what do you do when your team is underperforming? Now, in the day and age that we live in, and obviously everyone wanting to be seen and everyone wanting to be a high performer, no one really talks about what happens when your performance sucks, your team's performance sucks, whether you're leading, managing, or you're part of that team, nobody really wants to talk about that. And we don't see a lot of literature about this. You know, we we see lots of literature about maintaining your team's performance or how to optimize your team's performance, but no one really ever looks the stark reality in the face that all teams aren't good. So what does that mean and what can we do? Do we throw our hands up in the air? Do we hide? Do we get political and throw people under the bus? Or do we try to get on a new team? Do we leave the business? Or do we actually make a decision that changing the trajectory of a team or our team or the team that we're on is something that we can do? And I I believe it is. I think that performance is a skill. Obviously, we have people in this world and we all work with those people that may not have the drive or the determination or the skills. And even that can be managed by working with those individuals, determining whether they need to be supported to skill up, or maybe they're just on the wrong team or maybe in the wrong business. But for us at Ultra Habits, we do not throw our hands up in the air and give up. We make a decision, and that decision is to be the change that we want to see. So with that being said, we wanted to get Anne on the show to talk about what do we do when we recognize the team that we're on isn't doing so well. What are the characteristics of those teams? And then what can we actually do to start to shift the dial in a much more positive direction and trajectory, ultimately moving towards a performing and ideally a high performing team. And we talk about the habits of those type of teams. Too. So look, folks, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Anne. Hope you enjoy the show. As always, please rate this podcast. We're going to be coming to season end soon. We've been only been doing two episodes a month. We're going to be moving back to more episodes a month in 
the new year as I get some energy back into this whole podcasting game. But anyways, folks, really, really, really thank you for your continued support. Enjoy the show. Peace out, guys. I'm out. Hello, Anne. Welcome to Ultra Habits. It is about 7 a.m. here in Melbourne, Australia. Where are you coming to us from? So I'm coming from a town outside of Boston, Andover, uh, and it's four o'clock. Yeah, it was actually, these mornings are always early and um, compounded by the fact that my two-year-old decided to wake up a few times last night. My son came into the bed and he wouldn't stop coughing. Um, So it was an interesting night, but the show must go on, right? Well, look, I've been a fan of yours for a while, HBR, lots of articles, and one of the articles that you recently wrote really caught my attention. And it was what to do if your team is underperforming, right? And yeah. I think, you know, prior to the show, we talked about why this isn't really talked about. Like, I, I guess it's hard for people to admit that their team is not performing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and everyone's talking about high performance, but what does not performance look like? It is a hard topic to talk about because there's a couple, there's so many layers to it, right? Mm -hmm. In that I'm performing well, but my team is it. So I'm angry, right? That's not fair. And I'm being, I'm being judged by my team and they're not performing well. I think I tell, I think I'm telling them what to do. I know that I am, but they're not performing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's also on another side, and I don't talk about it in the article, but it's hard as a leader to tell somebody on your team that their team isn't performing well, right? That's a hard, it's just hard to, to talk about those things sometimes. And I think, too, it's hard to talk about because a lot of times right now we just say, your team isn't performing. Well, what does that mean? Right. And, and I get into that a little bit more, but you're, you're right. It's a hard topic to talk about. Do you find that, you know, people that have a view that their team isn't necessarily performing or people that are told that their team isn't performing, is it generally subjective or is it, def- is it generally about results or a bit of both? I think it's a bit about both. I think, you know, there's so many different layers and flavors, but um, I think too, part of it is what if you're getting the results, but actually, you you know, it's a, you are leaving a, you know, a toxic waste behind, your team is leaving a toxic waste behind because it's great to get the results, but if you have demotivated peers, you have demotivated teams, people feel bad, then that's not good results either, right? It's the you, shrapnel we need to worry about. Are you saying the ends don't justify the means? That's much better said. Yes. <laughs> that's a difficult one though, right? So you're, you're saying that leaders should be focused on the how versus the the kind of results and do you find that um for leaders that are getting results yet they're getting negative feedback from their environment like what do they do i still believe at the end of the day it's about the results or it's about the goals at the end of the day right it's about the agreed goals 
And a lot of times, and I, I'm going to get to your answer, so, yeah. but I, one thing that kind of what you said brought something up is we need to have clarity about what those goals are. And if you don't know, a lot of times we just kind of don't know. We don't have a lot of measures around that. Um, but I still, you know, it's this balance of making sure that you're meeting your goals. And sometimes it's almost impossible. I, I see it lately, right? People have these impossible goals that they need to meet, right? If I'm in sales. And it's just not going to happen. You know, so we had to get clarity around that. But then the people piece, it really gets down to what is the culture? What is the culture that you want to have within your org that's highly motivated teams that get those results, but that they do it in this um, motivated way, right? That everybody, because if you don't have a motivated team, then you don't, then you can't be creative in terms of thinking because you're always worrying. And I, I forget the specific author that really talks about it. I feel like it's Marcus Buckingham, but you know, you, you can't, um, you know, you have to have that motivated team. Right. And I think just a, another aside, and then um, I just didn't recently interviewed Susan Cain. And yeah. when she talks about, um, when she talks about people, right, in teams, I think one thing that comes up that we're not talking about, that's not in my HBR article, but it's something to think about is people, sometimes we don't show up as our authentic selves. You know what? Uh, my, we were just talking about this, right? My son was up, you know, four times. I'm really stressed out. My kid is really sick. Um, my daughter is not talking to me and I'm worried about her, right? Mm -hmm. We have to, and Susan Cain talks about that, we have to let people show up, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes in an underperforming team, we, and I talk about this, you really have to co-create the goals and you have to let people show up. Why yeah. are you underperforming? Yeah. And I think as a leader, Mm -hmm. That then opens up a whole another world that you're going to have to be willing to get into, right? Like there's different philosophies on leadership, right? There's the, um, you know, business isn't personal on one extreme and then business is very personal. And for right. me, I have a team that is highly emotive, very creative. However, there's a lot of flair. And I find that I dive into the subjective a lot with the people, which does drain me. But uh, at, the time, at the same time, I find that I get the most out of people because they understand that I care and I'm struggling with that balance. So for leaders out there, like, how do you know how to manage that piece? Yes. Can I ask a question? Just a clarifying question for myself. What do you mean by flair? I'm curious. Well, I have a theory that for, you know, high performers are generally motivated by some inspiration, but they're also motivated by fear, insecurity, some shrapnel, as you talked about earlier. 
And yeah. I think that the, the people that tend to have the capacity for great can also have the capacity for devastation at their worst. Absolutely. I completely agree. It's this hard part, right, of how do you balance this? And I think the most important thing you can do is care. If you, and I love that, right? Because if people care, that if you show people that they care, they're going to do, that's how you build trust on your team so that people feel like they can share what they need to share. Now, there is a point where it's too much and we can't, and I don't know what that is for everybody, right? You know, Mm -hmm. the difference of being too much in someone's, in someone's life, right? In Mm -hmm. terms of, you know, sometimes people need to see a therapist, right? So the only way that I can say that is, right? So when I'm as an executive coach, people's personal lives do bleed in. But I can't, but I'm not a therapist to talk about these certain things. And you kind of have to, in your gut, know when it is I can't, right? Or is it, because sometimes people need to go take a break. And that's okay if you're underperforming, right? And you're having all these personal issues, take a couple of days off. I almost look at it as a dance. You don't, you know, you have to kind of live in the moment. Within businesses, do you find that when there's lack of performance, it's indicative of the business culture or it can be very much isolated to a team? I think it's isolated to a team. I do. Because in some orgs, some teams are performing really well and some aren't. But it can be the culture that's driving some teams to not be performing well, right? Um, for example, you know, is the team, have you made the team up? Sometimes you inherit a team, so, you know, you, you mm-hmm. can't change those things. But when, when you're cr- creating that team, mm-hmm. have you leveraged all the strengths of the team members? Do you have diverse thinking? Do you, does everybody know what they need to be marching to? Do they know the leadership values of the team, Right. And so, so I think it's a combination of the two. Yeah. And, and what are you, when you look at a team that's not performing, what tends to be the characteristics of a team that aren't performing? So I think in some, some cases it can be just one person. One person can make an entire team be underperforming, right? whether it's somebody being toxic to, um, you know, just everybody's having to pull their weight. It can also be people don't understand what does great look like as me as a leader. This is so simple, but I can only think about this example. It's when I, when I say I work for you and I, I, I'm giving you a document, right? Have I gone through and done Grammarly through it? Have I really thought about all the details, right? What does great look like? What do, what do I expect, right? So there's, there's those sorts of things. And then I think just also, too, bad behavior. Also, did you put people in the right, are you, de- you know, for example, are you delegating the right way, hmm. right? Are you putting the right people with the right tasks? 
And that can be it too. Mm-hmm. And so in the HBR article, I talk a bit about it in terms of you need to be co-creating goals with your teams, right? Okay. It's not just you, but you have to co-create. What is the, what is the expectation? That's why I think one of the biggest kind of downfalls is what we all have this story in our head of what, what, what the expectations are. And so how can you be more transparent? And I'm going to circle back to what you said. And it really is about care. If I know my manager cares about me, I can go in and say, this isn't working. I'm concerned about we're not going to meet the revenue numbers. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but caring doesn't mean you're letting me off the hook. It means that I can go in without fear of, you know, retribution. I think a lot of leaders are afraid of being taken advantage of by showing care. But my view yes. is that my view is that the high performers or people that have high performance orientation will want to live up to the expectations and to that yes. care. And the wrong people will obviously try to take advantage of that, but then you do have the leverage and 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 um the right to call them out because Absolutely. there's a there's a contract there. There's a bit of a social contract. Like I'm going to be with you on this journey personally as well, but you need to show up for us as a team. And I think right. most performers will meet that contract, right? Right. You live to the the waterline, right? You work towards that waterline of expectations. Now, let's talk about toxic employees. Say someone's behavior is toxic, whether or not they're toxic or their behavior is toxic. That, I think that's a philosophical view. Uh, to what extent should a team try to work with that person and their toxic behavior versus cutting it out, i.e. getting rid of them? Yes. Okay. So I think it really... I wouldn't be an executive coach if I didn't think people could change. I believe that people can change, but here's my qualifiers, not change, but evolve. Okay. Because I believe I, I don't expect people to make this one, you know, 180 change that that's not, that's just not, I don't think that's realistic. I think it's little increments, but when I'm coaching somebody, I need to know, are you willing to learn and are you willing, are you motivated to learn and change? And if you have those two, then I think you can, right? But it's really hard because a toxic person has a certain brand, right? So everybody expects you. I worked in advertising for years. That's why I think about like, we, we all have our brands in the expectation, cognitive dissonance. Oh boy. Here comes mm-hmm. Anne again. She's going to be the pain in the neck in the meeting today, mm-hmm. or she's just going to rail on me and not mm-hmm. let me talk. Right? So, yes. Now, mm-hmm. part of that is they have to start off in many cases, right? Like, you have to say you're sorry. Some people mm-hmm. sometimes. And mm-hmm. That's a hard one. Margie, well, I'm going to say the, I'm going to look at the other side. So, years and years and years ago, in advertising, this woman was absolutely brilliant, <clears throat> ran this department. 
And she's the only one that had the knowledge of this one client, right? She'd been on it for like 20 years, whatever. But she was an extraordinarily toxic person. So ultimately, they had to take the senior leadership, had to take the risk and let her go. And the client might have gone too, and people might have gone too, but they couldn't have that, right? Clients stayed, people stayed. But that was a big risk. It's a lot of money. She held a lot of money, right, with this client. But they couldn't have this toxicity. And I, you know, I look back at it now and I'm like, wow, that was really actually a big risk they took. And do you think people will follow a toxic person or toxic people also have the ability to be charismatic and pull people in? Yes. I think people can be charismatic. I think also toxicity, they're great. They're gradations of it too, or just bad behavior. And some people like the comfort. I'm a, a salesperson by craft. And in my space, this plays out, right? Where mm-hmm. there's probably no other role that requires a sense of self-motivation, preservation. You know, there's a lot that goes on in the mindset of a salesperson, very similar to an athlete, I would say. And, oh, I agree. And I think that the move from a performer to a leader is a massive paradigm shift. Yeah. Massive paradigm shift because you are now worried about the collective. And so what I guess I'm trying to say is what I've noticed is what got an individual successful as a performer isn't necessarily what is going to get them successful as a leader, right? Absolutely. That is really, Marshall Goldsmith says it best. What got me here isn't going to get me there. We have to make that shift. That shift is where a lot of people stumble. A lot of people stumble, right? From being the individual contributor to now being a manager. Those things that I was really good at as a, as you know, an individual contributor don't always work when I'm, when I'm now the manager. People always talk about the comparison between a manager and leader and generally it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing, but let's flip that on, on its head. Like what's the value in being a good manager, because I'm sure there's a need to be a good manager as well as a good leader, but generally people yeah. will put them up and be like, oh, that's a manager. You're not a leader. What's your view on that? Like, do you think that we as leaders actually need to be good managers? And can you be a good leader, but a shit manager? Yes. So funny, <laughs> you know, I interchange and it's my bad manager yeah. and leader all the time because I think I, but like you, I think you need to have both. I need to be able to manage, get, get the work out the door, but I also have to be strategic as a leader and be forward thinking. Now you can't be both all the time, right? It kind of ebbs and flows and slides and you don't want to be a micromanager. That's a whole nother story, right? Mm. But I think you have to have a little bit of both. I've seen the downside of leadership without execution that frustrates a team because what happens is it just looks like pontification but there's no actual assistance in the execution and in my view to create a high performing team 
being an effective manager is very important because you got to be able to lead from the front. Yes. And to me, a manager, you know, can execute and a leader, um, you, you know, may be able to motivate and, and inspire and, and show the vi- vision. But I think that it does require uh, both. And I, and I have no doubt that this is what contributes to uh, high performing teams as well as, you know, teams that aren't performing. So I'm going to shift the conversation. So when come, sure. people come and see you, um, and what are they usually, why are they seeing you? What have they been told or what's their, their narrative? Like, what are they telling mm-hmm. themselves? Why have they come to see Ann Sugar? So can I put a pause on that for one second? I yeah. want to go back to something that you said that I think is really important about execution and a manager. So I think you do need to know not every single step, but the things that go into your teams getting the work done. Because one of the biggest friction points I see in underperforming teams too is a manager sets a deadline, but they don't know the 17 steps it takes because they only think there's three. And that I have actually seen people leave because they burn out and they're so frustrated and they don't see progress. And I, I, I definitely want to hit that other point, but I think it's real. I think sometimes the small tactics are the most important things, most impactful. And I think right now, because everybody's running at 2000%, right? And people are, you know, there've been layoffs and there's all these things, right? Swirling. That is one thing that is really frustrating teams and creating underperformance. Cause If I have to do the 17, I'm not going to do the 17 well in a two-day period, Yeah. right? When you promised that this work was going to be done. Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. Like I tend to find people are either um, because of the inconsistencies of people's work ethics and their own style, like you've got some that are... uh, won't will suffer in silence and smash things out and you've got to be very, very much across them or else one day you're going to have that conversation that you weren't expecting because you weren't aware as a leader that, Hey, I'm, 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 I'm burnt out here. And then you've got, um, you know, the other extreme where people are barely meeting whatever task is set and they're yeah. barely meeting the standard. And it's like, you're trying to raise the bar on them. Um, because you obviously want to set a higher standard. I mean, you know, is, is Martin Moore, says this, this, the standard you walk by is a standard you set, right? So, I mean, yeah. in, in, in many ways, like I'm, I'm quite aware of that too. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I definitely agree with you on that. So I just wanted to, to get that point in. So why do people come and see me? People come and see me in two ways. So I do a lot of leadership development right? mm-hmm. So within orgs, but I also am an executive coach and People come to see me, most of the time, it's higher-performing individuals that have had a little stumble, want to get to the next level, or or want to get to the next level, and I need to, let's say, work on how I communicate upwards, or I'm not motivating my team properly, right? I have a demotivated team. This shows up in my, you know, another thing might be this shows up in my 360. 
I need to work on this, right? So I work with high potentials where high potential leaders, where um, there are certain aspects that they need to shore up. When you look at these high potential people that are, let's say, new to uh, leading a team and, mm-hmm. and that that team is not necessarily performing, what is it generally that these people are missing? Some of these are blocking and tackling sorts of things. And then there's other blocking and tackling. Like, for example, I need to be able to delegate better. Mm-hmm. And people's and I coach CEOs on delegating down to like a, you know, a supervisor. There is not one person. I think some other things that come up are listening, asking a good question. I think one thing that I work on a lot, and I call it almost speed. As a leader, I'm able to go from A to C. I can skip step B. But my teams are frustrated because they need to have linear thinking from A to B to C. So a lot of that is teaching. I think one thing that's come up that's really interesting, this is more of a blocking and tackling thing. I call it external thinking. So external thinking is somebody who they almost look disorganized. I'm coaching a chief um, revenue officer on this. Mm -hmm. They're very creative, but they're external thinkers, right? So they, they kind of swirl a little, a little bit, but they come out at the end with Mm -hmm. the idea, but in this kind of swirling where they're Mm -hmm. kind of, their brains are externally Mm -hmm. thinking, they Mm -hmm. look disorganized, right? Versus a, somebody who's a thinker, an internal, you know, you could call it extroverted, introverted, but I kind of call it external thinking. That's one that comes up a lot for people, particularly how you manage up. You can't sit in a board meeting and be swirling with external thinking. I work with different types of people and founders, and one of the people that's in my ecosystem, and we've had this conversation, uh, when he gets an idea, he'll come and share it with everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a million miles an hour, and it's a strategic idea mm-hmm. that may or may not have any merit. But in his view, he can see it with clarity. But yeah. it will change tomorrow. The problem is when you share it with the team, and we've had this conversation, the team is engaged in tactical execution. So they're like, oh, my God, are we shifting direction here? They don't realize it's an idea. And -hmm. you have to ring fence who and when you share these ideas with. So we had an agreement that you will throw all this stuff at me. Mm -hmm. Because the team can't cope with this variation of strategy, whether it's just an idea or something for real, they get anxiety. Like it, oh, it's, it's really, people are freaking out, but it's interesting. It's, it, and I have, I've had a tendency to do this. So I recognize it in, in this individual because this is how I'm typically geared myself. I'm impulsive, um, mm-hmm. but it creates chaos. It can, because it's almost like people are running behind a person kind of holding the basket, right? <laughs> and catching all of the ideas. 
And they're all brilliant ideas, but it makes people concerned. And I've had a manager like that. He'd just brainstorm, like, and at the end of the meeting, this is an advertiser, I would, I thought, holy moly, I have 17 new projects. I can't get that done. Or if you're in a board meeting and you're kind of doing the external thinking, you come across as scattered and disorganized. It doesn't look good for your brand or play well because it looks like you haven't thought through your strategy when that's actually not the case. Many, many external thinkers are extraordinarily creative and have the best ideas. What I coach people, if you're going to go into with a team and you know you're an external thinker, you almost have to think in an outline. You do have to think in an outline. It's really hard, but you have to start practicing or you have to almost kind of write out. I'm only going to talk about these three points today. Or one other thing that I have people do is keep, you know, a notepad next to them and just write ideas down, but only stick to the one idea because you can come back around and send an email or do any of that, right? I saw one of your articles actually now that is relevant for this because what you're talking about, about is, this, yes. yeah, well, people will hijack meetings oh. as well, right? Like, yeah, because you're thinking it through. I actually, I, I can do this as well. As a salesperson, you're always trying to control the frame and yes. it's, and it's become something that is really part of who I am in every capacity. And, and I think what happens is you feel like if you're not controlling the frame, you'll lose control. Yes. And let me tell you an interesting story about a client. And that gets to this. He's a head of R&D in yeah. a large biotech company. And he would need to present to the board to get his funding. Yeah. And he'd have a 50-page document. And on page three, he got the sale. They told him yes, but he still went through the 50 pages. And he lost the audience. And that's what you're talking about in terms of framing, right? Mm -hmm. Is stop. I'm really about the economy of words. A lot of us want to just have this kind of verbal blah because it, we think we need to get every single point out, but we don't. Simplicity is so much better. Do we have to prepare more and be more conscious then before meetings? Yes. Yes. I think that's a big secret, right? Because we see very, um, you know, very good speakers, right? Without any notes talking. And we think that, well, we can do that too. No, that's like the 2% of the world or they have practiced so much. That's right. That they can let it flow as a conversation. And I mean, really practice. Yeah, yeah. I used to have a, a manager and she was very good. And she told me she was all about perspiration, not inspiration. And she, you yes. know, her what she told me, I was uh, basically, I used to ad hoc things too much. And I'd come unstuck a lot because of the pressure of the situation. And mm-hmm. I thought I could handle it on an ad hoc basis. And then, and then I learned when you, when you, when you pair your inspiration, your ability to inspire with preparation which is in uh, perspiration the yeah. outcome is extraordinary because then yeah. you can actually be more spontaneous 
when you actually are prepared. Absolutely. So I, it's funny you should say that. I interviewed an actor. He was on Scandal. He wrote a book. Yeah. And he would talk about preparation. And he would, he really, really worked at memorizing his lines. Mm-hmm. Because just like you said, he could live in the moment because he right. didn't have to let, he didn't have to think about the lines. He could actually really be much more emotional and act better because mm-hmm. he li- could live in that moment. When I was um, doing my MBA, we had um, lots of um, group work and we would be sequestered on site for a weeks at a time. And in my group, I would always do the pitch. So we'd pitch to external people and mm-hmm. and I'm outgoing. So people would assume that I was great at present pre- like presentations because I was an outgoing person. Mm-hmm. But what they didn't know was the night before when they were out drinking and and, and doing what they were doing, I was yeah. in the room preparing all night. And yes. I would go to that, I would go to the presentation and it would look ad hoc. And everyone thought it was like just off the cuff. But again, it was about the ability to um to be spontaneous, to to kind of go off script to the people we were presenting to was purely um, due to the fact that I had the basics covered. I I had already memorized the basic preparation or presentation. So it just gives you ease and this clarity and this ease comes off as confidence as well, right? It's just this easy flow that I can have this conversation. Well, we're going to start to land the the plane and I I really want to thank you for for joining us on the show. Now, we always talk about habits being ultra habits, or, you know, we might frame it as characteristics. Mm-hmm. Someone comes to see you and they're like, and I've been a performer my whole life. I've inherited this team and we suck right now. Like we're just not yes. performing. What are some of the things they could do immediately to start to get a handle on what is actually going on? Part of it is they need to really listen to what the feedback is from their manager and not take it from a defensive perspective. It's really about listening. This is what needs, I I need the clarity of what needs to be changed and that they're not alone and that they need the support of their managers to help them. It doesn't mean the manager is going to do it for them, but they need the support. You can get support from a lot of places too, right? Maybe your manager isn't supportive and you can't be, whoa, whoa, whoa is me. Too bad. You find support from your peers. You find support from your mentors. You find support from people that you used to work with. And we already talked about this, that, you know, you need to hold your team accountable for those things. So after you've gotten all the feedback. And the one thing we haven't talked about, but I think is really important is you need to take an internal look at yourself. Am I being a good leader? Do I need to make some shifts? Am I not holding people accountable? Like you said at the beginning, am I not, am I letting toxic behavior go? Or do I need to work on how I communicate what needs to happen or follow through and follow up or whatever it is? So I I think those are some of the core things. I think so. I think like that, that theme of introspection and then, okay, what are the skills I need to actually help 
move because ultimately it is a skill, right? Like I think leadership's a skill. It's not yes. something where, you know, I, you know, lots of people love, you know, speeches and natural leaders and this idea that people are born the way they are. But I mean, I think everything is a skill. And if we 100%. develop the right habits um, and processes, we can develop that. So look, I really, I really want to thank you, Anne. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. I've been chasing you for a long time. I'm so glad yeah. I got you on the gig here. Um, where does the audience find you? Like, where can we learn more about Ann Sugar? Cool last name, by the way. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> you can find me at annsugar.com. So it's A-N-N-E, sugar.com. Yeah. You can sign up for my newsletter. I also have um, articles that I share a lot on LinkedIn. It's very easy to go follow me on LinkedIn at Ann Sugar. Every day I share articles with the why. Why is it important? Those are the two places. All right, Anne. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, no. Thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you. I really enjoyed it.